Welcome to my podcast. It has many different names, many different topics, and because of who I am, it always seems to be shifting and changing. So welcome to my podcast. So today's topic is a new way of looking at an old concept. And that is the concept of consent. So there's three things about consent you probably didn't know or didn't really think about. Number one, it is self-directed. It can only come from you. Number two, it is permission from you about you. And three, it is required before any desired change can happen in your life. One way we think about consent is when it comes to sexual activity. But there are many other places that consent is required. For example, in medicine, we think of informed consent, and that has only been with us since 1972 as a result of the Tuskegee experiment and probably Henrietta Lacks, but that was in the 50s. There is that kind of consent where the other party has to provide all the information required to make an informed decision. We could think about this like truth in advertising or the labels on our food. We have an expectation here in the United States that the government has an interest in protecting its citizens, and we have an expectation that the world should be a safe place to live. But I want to think about consent in a different way. I want to think about consent as something that we have to give ourselves. We must be able to entertain the notion that we are willing to accept or do something. That may be a new thought or a new way of improving our golf game or our skiing. We have to be willing. So is being willing the same as consent, or do you need to be willing in order to even give consent? And that's another thing. Consent is given. It's a thing. Consent cannot be taken. It can only be given. When it's taken, we call it something else. And in the case of informed consent, we are getting information given to us so we can make a good decision in theory. But ultimately, we still have to give consent. This is part of a decision-making process. You have to decide first to put yourself into a position where consent is required. If we think of consent in terms of steps, we could say that first is the decision to think about an activity or an action. We have to gather data and reviews online and see if we can find something cheaper on Amazon or somewhere else. An example in medicine is we have a thought, I'd like to get this mole removed from my back. That starts us on the information gathering path. Informed consent takes this layer of information one more layer deeper. It is the real consequences of engaging in a medical procedure that involves anesthesia, needles, cutting, and pathology. Up until then, we could only imagine what could really happen. Even with the horror stories from the internet about this particular procedure, the clinician can tell you really how bad it could be. And of course, the ultimate bad outcome is death. No matter how minor the procedure, the thing to know is that you can always die while you're seeking medical treatment. That in and of itself is somewhat distressing, but we aren't thinking about that today. Consent steps. Step one, decide to embark on a path. Then create the knowledge and information we need to make the decision to proceed. The last step is a few moments before the procedure. You sign five pages of documents that you do not read, which is there to protect the clinician and not you, the patient. Even though informed consent is supposedly for your, the the patient's benefit, it's really about protecting the clinician from liability. Now you've completed your due diligence, so many legal terms. That should tell you something about this process, at least in medicine. It's about liability and legal rights. 
even in a sexual arena, it's the same thing. It's about liability and responsibility. The time to worry is during the decision process, not after the decision process. That's when we actually do whatever we have decided to do. If you are not resolved to act in the way you have decided, you have not taken all the time you need to, to gather the information to make a decision to act. Don't act until you have resolved to act. Now, resolved means gone through all the solutions or solves, and now the clear answer is before you. That is resolved. You have decided the best course of action for right now. And if you are not resolved, you are not ready to make a decision to act. And that means do not act. When you are ready, it will be clear. If you are not clear, you are not ready. Okay, but what does this have to do with consent? When we give consent, we have given the decision its moment. It now shifts from a thought process to an action. Maybe I need to back up about consent. What is consent or how do we give consent? We're familiar with the verbal consent, informed consent, written consent, etc. But what is it actually? Permission or agreement? That's what the dictionary says. Now, permission implies authority or a right to act or grant authorization. Only a person with authority can grant permission. In theory, when we are talking about our own bodies, we imagine that we have authority over our own body. Now, this is not always true, but that's a different podcast. So again, when we sign all those informed consent papers, we are saying we have the authority over our body to commit it to this process. The authority to grant permission or to authorize behavior or access, that's what permission is. You can see how close to consent that is. But consent means to agree to do something of your own free will. Permission means that someone else authorizes you to act. Your free will is not part of the equation. These are close concepts, but not really the same as one comes from inside and one comes from outside of us, like our parents signing a permission slip for field trips. Now, agreement implies that more than one party has decided to proceed in some area. It can also be called a contract or an agreement contract. That involves more than one party. And although we make agreements with ourselves all the time, like New Year's resolutions, typically it's between more than one party. Consent is more like permission and less like an agreement. The person we give consent to is agreeing to act in the ways we have given consent or permission to act in the ways that impact us. In that way, when receiving consent, they are getting permission from us to act. Consent from us that gives permission to them. They receive authorization to act on our behalf, hopefully for our benefit. This is a pretty familiar example. But what about when we get into the kind of work that I do, work in diversity, equity, and inclusion? What do we need in terms of consent? In the workplace, training can be mandatory, including diversity, equity, and inclusion training. An employee gives consent to attend a training, but typically it is as a condition of employment. And that again is a different podcast. Many folks are required to participate, and there are folks that say that if you force people to participate in DEI training or diversity, equity, inclusion trainings, these types of trainings are ineffective and actually create the opposite outcome. They reinforce these ideas of inequity. But I say to that, sexual harassment training is also mandatory, and it made and makes an impact on people's behavior in the workplace, and it works, even if it's mandatory. Now, why are these seen as different? Only you can answer that in a reasonable way for yourself. 
So diversity, equity, and inclusion work is about learning how to treat other people with dignity and respect. That is really the bottom line. I always thought that came from morality, what is right or wrong, and many times has a spiritual foundation. But I have been proven wrong by people who use religion and religious ideology to promote the exclusion of and the hatred of people from Catholics against Protestants to Christians against Jews and Muslims and Hindus and any other religious ideology that expresses a hatred or intolerance for others. Now here in the United States, many people think that this is a protected right guaranteed in the constitution. However, that is not true. Hatred in any form is not protected at all. Well, that isn't exactly true either, but I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole either. So let's focus back on consent. So in order to think about something in a new way, we have to be willing to entertain the notion of something different, and then consent comes into play. It is an it's an internal moment to give ourselves permission to change. And without that consent, we will not shift or change our thinking processes. We will not change anything. We cannot change our thinking if we do not give consent to change what we already know. That is where the difficulty lies. We don't want to change. We have heard our whole lives that change is difficult, but really only things that seem hard are difficult to change. Getting more money seems easy to adapt to, or having an additional week of vacation seems to be easy to change, but things that we are invested in or have as part of our self-identity, those are things that are hard to change. And when I think about that, I think about communication styles and relationships that I just can't change is something that you hear oftentimes in those kinds of relationship challenging moments. Now, these are core beliefs that we have about ourselves or about the world around us. And these beliefs are what actually shape our thinking and behavior. The belief that other people are fundamentally different from us is a false premise. Yet, we are told all, all of our lives that we are different from others and that what others get is their fault. But we often do not extend that maxim to ourselves that we deserve what we get as well. And that is a little bit more complicated than that statement as well. So I have yet to find a satisfying answer to why people vote against their own best interest or make choices that are not in their own best interest, not in an altruistic way, right, where they're sacrificing for their children or for someone else, but to hurt others, including themselves kind of way. This does not make any sense without understanding this idea about self-identity, what we believe about ourselves in the world. An example of this is watching the poorest counties in the United States vote in large percentages to end social supports, the very supports that are keeping them alive. That is to not provide support for others more deserving but rather to punish people who need support. What seems to be missing is the understanding of who is receiving these supports. As long as the belief is held that other people are using social security, disability, or unemployment and do not deserve them, these counties vote to end the benefits that many of them rely on to eat and provide shelter. How can folks not see the connection between their votes and the consequences for those results? Their own beliefs about who deserves to have support and who does not is the only explanation that I can come up with. So how does this intersect with consent? If you as an individual refuse to accept that other people have been harmed by these practices, you may not see the need to address these generational inequities. If you are unwilling to consent to hear and learn about how other people experience the world, as if your life experience is universal, 
then you cannot see that the system has enhanced your life and defeated others. Not based on merit. Many folks think that the U.S. is a merit-based country. Work hard and you can succeed. But not realizing that this is also a false narrative, a story that doesn't make sense. We live in a country where who you know is far more important than what you know. Consent, again, is the ability to give yourself permission. That almost sounds ludicrous, but in effect, the impact is just that. The need for permission is at the heart of this discussion. When I teach a class about culture, I am often exposing the information that people hold. They do not know they hold that information until it is exposed. Then they have the choice to learn or accept new information or not. What comes first? The decision to give themselves permission to learn new information? It isn't necessarily a conscious decision, but at some point in the conversation, that decision becomes apparent. When I'm teaching a class and I see people lean back and cross their arms, I know that they have decided to not consent to learn something new. In fact, they are doing everything they can to not learn something new. And when people are leaning forward and they are engaged, then I know that that decision to learn something new, to be curious, to accept, to want to know, is part of their experience in that moment. Adult learners are not like children. They already have a whole storehouse of information and understanding about the world. And new information must either fit into that storehouse or has to replace some information that is already stored, an update, if you will. Adults must consider and compare this new information to many other scraps of information they already hold. Children just learn it and move on, accepting it as a thing to be stored. They are in a state of perpetual consent without filters until some base knowledge is acquired. Then the compare and contrast method of acquiring knowledge begins to build the scaffold inside their storehouse of knowledge. This process of self-permission has many different examples from addiction to overindulgence to spending money on credit these are all forms of permission we give to ourselves to act in a certain way, a way that we believe is right for us. If we believe it is right, we will follow that path to the ends of the earth if our conviction is strong enough. Now, in terms of racism, sexism, trans, hatred, intolerance of other religious beliefs or political ideologies, we have given ourselves permission to see the world that way. Permission to believe that we are right in acknowledging these differences create folks who are less deserving than us as individuals. This is consent on our part to treat others differently and badly. We do not ask for their consent. What we are doing is not called consent when it comes to how we behave towards others. We also do not think we need their consent. We think or believe they see the world exactly as we do, that they deserve to be treated in whatever way we deem fit, as well as we deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. That others should also agree with our idea, our idea about who they are or how they deserve to be treated. As if they are giving us permission to treat them that way. As if they agreed to be treated as less than. As if they agreed that our individual rights are more certain than theirs are. As if people agree to our behaviors. We do not need their consent because we have taken away their ability to consent to anything. Remember that consent is the permission to act in our best interest or to agree to something happening around us or to us. When we do not give permission, we call that unfair or a crime. For example, if you ask to borrow my motorcycle and I give you permission or authorization to ride my motorcycle, we are all happy. 
But if you ride my motorcycle without my permission or authorization, that is grand theft auto, a crime, a felony. Yet when it comes to treating people and not things, we often overlook this important central idea that consent means I have given you permission. When I'm treated as less than, I am not consenting to that. I am not agreeing to that, nor am I authorizing that. You are treating me as less than based on your consent to act in that way, your agreement with yourself, or your giving yourself permission to act in the world. It is not based on my consent, only yours. In terms of a motorcycle ride, you are taking my motorcycle without my consent or authorization. That is a crime. Yet again, we don't see these isms as a crime, not even something to think about or consider in some cases. It is the same fundamental thing, however. You are acting in a way that strips me of my consent altogether. To me, that should be a crime. We all know that the laws of, that govern the United States are here to create a functional society, and that means equal protection under the law, or so says the 14th Amendment. Anarchy is not considered a peaceful existence. So that's why when we talk about consent and authorization and crime, that's where we come to the laws that govern the United States. We do have laws against racial discrimination. However, people don't always follow the law. Why? Because they don't think that what they're doing is breaking the law. So how does cultural competency and consent implicate one another? How does your consent become interdependent with cultural awareness or inclusion or just plain respect? That's a question only you know the correct answer to. Thanks for listening to my podcast. That's it for today. My name is Jay Caffarata. This is my podcast. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me, jay, J-A-Y, at asltraining.com. Thank you.